Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that talks about women's issues, in particularly violence against women and issues about children. And today we are also doing a show about children, and this one is about safety for children. So it's an informative show for all of us, I think. Even if you don't have children at home, you're around children. You see them in stores. You might have relatives. And it's really important that we address the issue of child safety every now and then because new things come up. Today, I'm happy to say that we have Connie Sponsler-Garcia with us. She is currently working with the Battered Women's Justice Project. She's a training and technical assistance manager there, and it's, of course, a national resource center funded by the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services. And what it does is provides technical assistance and expertise to criminal and civil justice practitioners, advocates, communities regarding domestic violence and intervention. She's uh, been through a lot, and I'm going to stop now and let her talk about some of the stuff she's been doing in the issues of uh, child safety. Welcome, Connie. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Heather. I'm, I'm glad that you called me. Um, in terms of <laughs> looking at child safety, <laughs> um, what we're going to be focusing on today in my area of expertise you know, has to do with domestic violence. And so many battered women have, you know, children. And so many women don't even know that they're battered women that are simply living in abusive situations, of course, have children and children are often the victims. And okay. Connie, Connie, I'm going to stop about... you. Connie, yeah. Connie, I'm going to stop you because all of a sudden we're getting really bad reception. Uh, can okay. you go back to where you started the conversation? Because <laughs> that was okay. good reception. There, there. Now you're stuck there. (laughs) All right, good. I'll stick there. Okay. And so I'm going to be talking about um, assessing the risk for potential um, lethal or very serious domestic violence and Uh how communities have been responding to that. Okay, and we're going to talk particularly about uh, the domestic violence situation, and I think it's important that we emphasize to folks a lot of times people think, uh, well, you know, the children weren't hit or the children weren't abused. The fact that children are in that environment is abusive. And, uh, you know, the, there's been a lot of studies that show that there are actually some really long-term effects for children who have been in dangerous situations regarding domestic violence. So, Connie, tell us more. Well, I think that, you know, when we start talking about the effects of children and being in a family where there is domestic violence, we need to be quite careful in how we try to understand this issue. I think that many times the the response of the system, um, both criminal justice and um, community, is to try to ask the victim of the domestic violence to hold the offender accountable. And yeah. if, therefore, if the victim cannot hold the offender accountable, then we'll hold her accountable for not yeah. being that whole able failure to, to protect hold the better issue. accountable. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole failure to protect thing, where if you don't, uh, and there have been arrests for that, it's been quite a, a contentious thing, because a victim of domestic violence can find her children taken away because she failed to protect them, and, you know, when she couldn't even protect herself, let alone her children. So a lot of victim-blaming kind of stuff going on. So I appreciate your point there, Connie. Um, nevertheless, children are impacted, um, and it, it is a safety issue. So, you know, let's let's address it from that standpoint. All right. You know, when we had um, talked yesterday, we talked about um, the issue of risk assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And that whole um, kind of being able to identify when, you, when a situation of domestic violence might become um, extremely dangerous and potentially lethal. Mm-hmm. And the impact, you know, that that has on children is kind of obvious in that when you have a non-offending parent who's being abused, it affects their ability to parent 
and keep their children safe. It mm-hmm. also affects the fact that they may themselves become victims um, in a family where there is potentially lethal domestic violence. And also when we have custody or um, very contentious um, child visitation or divorce proceedings in a, in a relationship where there has been quite a bit of domestic violence, this also ups the ante a lot in terms of it being a very potentially dangerous situation for both the victim and for the children. And I think that this is one area in which uh, family court has been kind of slow to come around oh. to the realization. Well, you know, that's just a nice way to put it, I guess. Uh, that they've been slow to come around <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, I think you're being very nice. <laughs> I'm trying to be political here uh, and focusing yeah. on the issue of domestic violence and its dangers. Yep. Connie, you need to go back to where you were. Okay. I'm losing you. <laughs> you, know, you may as well be in a body cast for the next 40 minutes. <laughs> okay, I'll try. Okay. Would you, like, would you like me to talk more about the issues of risk assessment? Well, I would like to know about risk assessment. When we talked earlier, I said, you know, I hear risk assessment, and the first thing I think of is more victim blaming, that somebody who doesn't know a lot about domestic violence is going to see, you know, these lists of relative or friend or clergy, you know, somebody who is in the the uh, position of working with or helping a domestic violence victim, and they're going to see these lists of risk assessments, and they're going to say, well, see, why didn't you just see these warning signals? Why didn't you do this? And it's going to become the victim's victim's fault all over again. Um, you were explaining that these assessments are used mostly for court personnel. Well, I'm saying, you know, there's a, a few different ways to look at this. Uh, the first is that um, in response to what you said, there certainly is a tendency to, once again, as I said, ask the victim to hold the offender accountable to stop the battering. And so we're asking the, le- the least able and the most vulnerable person to take responsibility for making another person to stop the violence. And mm-hmm. that really isn't possible, nor does it really make sense when you think about it. And you so know, the if best she was thing able to make him stop, she would have done so, you know. She would have done so, of course. Um, I think that the risk assessment lists, and I'm not sure which ones you're addressing, but there are some validated risk assessment tools that can look at what has already happened in a relationship and then look at the factors that have been, by research, identified as being um, more likely to end up in a potentially lethal situation. One of those okay. is the danger, the danger Assessment by Dr. Jacqueline Campbell, which is available okay. online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's... That's one of the best ones, I think, for victims to um, look at or people who want to help victims. But it has to be done, you know, um, with the understanding that a lot of times victims do not, um, well, they minimize. And the minimizing is a survival technique. Um, The majority of reasons, one of the biggest reasons that Victims stay in, well, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons they stay has a lot to do with finances. And especially now in this economy, I'm sure we all know people, you know, who have suffered through the recession and have made choices that they might not have otherwise made if they had the financial means to do differently. And that's especially true for victims of domestic violence and especially if they have children. Um, you have to consider, you know, where is my income going to go? Where am I going to live? What's going to happen with my children? And so sometimes whether or not you're getting slapped or hit a couple times a week doesn't seem to be that big of a deal uh, compared with the fact that, you know, you you have a home to live in, you have someone to help pay the bills. And so, you know, you try to think, well, maybe, you know, you rationalize, maybe it's not that bad. And, you know, not really understanding that this could get worse, or even when it does get worse, um, you're still having a hard time figuring out what can I do differently. And so you use a lot of different strategies to try to keep yourself safe while you're still in the home in terms of, you know, placating the abuser, um, you know, trying to be compliant 
to the rules that the abusive partner has set up, um, walking on eggshells, just trying to, you know, to keep the status quo where it is while you can try to figure out another way to survive. Yes, absolutely. I, and I think that's a very, um, very uh, astute assessment of why women are in situations like this. Everybody um, who doesn't um, have or hasn't experienced domestic violence, of course, their first question is, well, just leave. Um, I've also heard people say, including myself, well, if anybody ever did that to me, I'd be out the door, making it sound like it's such a simple thing, and it's not. Well, for some women, you know, for, for some women whom it might seem to be a simple thing because, let's say, you have other resources. Um, you, mm-hmm. know, you probably yes. have you probably have a job. You probably have some opportunities and some options. You probably have some friends and some support system. Um, that would seem to make it a little simpler. It may be complicated mm-hmm. by the fact that you have um, uh, you belong to a religious community mm-hmm. that is going to stigmatize you or maybe even um, you know throw you out of the community, which does happen um, yes. if you leave your husband. Um, let's say that you don't have the the kinds of um, resources that are available to, you know, a middle-class working woman who has, you know, some education and some choices. Let's say that you're an immigrant uh, victim um, or you have language issues, that you don't speak the language in this country. Um, Or you have other issues like you've had a criminal record yourself for for some sort of crime. Or if you use substances, I mean, all of these things are taking away, you know, potential options that make it unrealistic for you that you would actually end up uh, being able to leave or that if leaving would make you in a better situation. Uh, I think a lot of times people who work both in the criminal justice and in the social service system fail to understand that there's more risks facing victims of domestic violence and their children and the risks that are um, uh, focused on between her and the abusive partner. There are actually risks involved in asking for help. And it can turn out worse for you um, as a victim when you ask for help than by just trying to handle the situation yourself. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. I think you're correct. I think you're absolutely correct. Um, Do you think that, um, you know, that, that the issue of child safety is underrated in these kinds of situations? Child safety. Well, that's a giant topic, Heather. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's there's the safety that's posed. I mean, once again, we have the same kind of variables. There's the safety that's actually posed to the child by being abused by the abusive parent. And Mm -hmm. that does happen in about 30% of the cases where there's um, domestic violence in a family is that the child is going to be abused by one or other of the parents. Usually it's the one that's perpetrating the violence upon the non-offending parent, but not always. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the harm of children trying to intervene, especially as they get older, uh, between the violence when the one when the one parent is battering or hurting the other parent, and the child tries to intervene and may get hurt, um, yes. there's the emotional and psychological um, damage from living in fear, watching what's going on in your family, and also the effect that that has on you as you grow up, um, in terms of your. Uh, relationships, your future relationships, your dating relationships. So there are a lot of, you know, issues and variance depending on the age of the child, how much they see, how much they've been involved. Um, And there's also a lot of controversy about what helps. Of course, you know, the main thing that would help would be if the abusive parent would stop abusing the non-abusive parent. Uh, that would be the first thing that would be helpful. Uh, but how we tend to look at it is the most helpful thing would be is if the abused person left the relationship. Instead of saying the most helpful thing would be is that if the person who's abusing would stop being abusive and if the system could do something to hold that person accountable. 
So I think we yes. look at it towards most of the time. Well, and I think also, you know, we tend to think, it, uh, again, it's the victim's responsibility. She should leave. She should, uh, you know, uh, take action against it. And the more logical statement is he should leave, as you just said. Um, the, the abuser is the one who should leave. Um, but that rarely happens, I think. Um, I'm, you know, I'm well, just guessing that. Right. And I think, I mean, yes, you know, you could certainly argue that, um, you know, if he doesn't stop, that the uh, that the victim should leave. But mm-hmm. once again, as I said, it's not that easy. And on the other hand, not saying that they shouldn't leave, but I think that before we start blaming somebody for not leaving, we do have to understand or try to understand why they're staying and also to understand that leaving an abusive relationship does not stop the violence. In fact, in many yeah. cases, it it makes the violence increase. Yeah, um, it, it it's not you know it, when you yeah. walk out the door. When you walk out the door, it does not the abusive person is not going to say, "Oh, okay, you don't want to be here. That's fine with me. Have a good life." Okay, that's not what happens. And in most cases, um, you know, there's going to be consequences for trying to get help. And you know, you can be stalked. You can be cyber stalked. You can have somebody come to your job. You know, you can have them cause you years and years of pain in family court, arguing over the children, threatening the children. Um, It's just not as simple as leaving. Leaving does not stop the violence in most situations. It just makes it different. Yeah, yeah. At this point, uh, Connie, I would like to invite our listeners to give us a call. We haven't uh, really mentioned this, but we can take calls if you have questions for Connie or uh, situations that you want to share with us. The phone number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. We'd love to have you join this conversation. Well, we've kind of strayed a little bit from our original premise, Connie, and we were talking about risk assessment. And I'm assuming that that means assessing the perpetrator, the circumstances, and trying to figure out what is the likelihood of something bad happening in the future. Am I oversimplifying that? Uh, Not really. Um, In each situation, whether it's going to be using a danger assessment in a one-to-one conversation with a victim, or it's going to be using various tools that have been developed for the criminal justice intervention to determine how potentially dangerous is the situation. The goal, of course, is not just to identify that it's potentially dangerous, but to take that information and, um, in terms of the criminal justice intervention, decide what can we do differently now that we can see that this particular situation has the potential um, to be lethal or extremely dangerous. And I think that that's um, something that there are several, quite a few communities around the country that are trying to look at this issue. The first thing you have to come to understand and accept, um, which I think is really hard, is that all domestic violence is not the same. And I think this is hard because, you know, for for 30 years I've been working in this field, we started out by saying, you know, every hit is battering and all domestic violence is the same. And no matter what's going on, this is the answer. And over the mm-hmm. last 30 years, we've become a lot more nuanced or trying to become more nuanced in our response, which, you know, uh, uh, you have to take the research that's been done about kind of what kind of violence is happening in in interpersonal relationships and intimate partner relationships. Um, Why is that kind of violence happening? What kind of violence is the most dangerous? And uh, that has been difficult um, for, for the criminal justice system because we started out saying, you know, anybody who hits anybody should probably be arrested. And so we fought for that for quite a few years in terms of, Um, pro-arrest and mandatory arrest policies. And we have a lot of cities who are doing a really good job at that. We have some who, you know, still haven't quite got there and some who aren't doing much of anything different from what they were doing 20 years ago. But, you know, there is an arc of changing practice out there in criminal justice. 
And now we're asking them once again to look at their practice and say, okay, not all of this is the same. We have yes. some that's probably um, just the police intervention is going to make it stop, and research has shown that that is true um, in about really? 20 25% of the cases, yes, that, you know, having a police intervention, you know, one time will stop the violence in about 20 to 25% of the cases. Um, does it stop the violence but, or does it just stop the reporting of violence? Well, it seems to, according to, you know, some of the really good research that's been done where they um, interviewed the partners as well as looked at the issue of did it repeat, you know, was it recidivism, was it repeat violence, they also talked to the partners and found out that in about 20 to 25 cases of violence did stop. Now, that doesn't mean that the perpetrator becomes a wonderful partner. It just means that they're going to stop committing violence because perhaps, you know, they have a, a stake in not being arrested again, and they don't mm-hmm. want to go through that process. They have things to lose in terms of, you know, their standing in the community, their stigma, losing their job, um, all of those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And so they can find other ways you know, to um, gain compliance in their relationship than using violence. Um, you know, yes. there's emotional abuse, financial abuse. I mean, there's all different kinds of strategies yes. that can be used mm-hmm. instead of actual physical assault. Okay. Um, so, and so we, we talk, have, you know, these different kinds. Um, go ahead. When we talk victim safety or, or um, assessment, uh, risk assessment, are we talking about the risk of the... Um, perpetrator continuing in the same uh, the same way he has been or are we talking about it getting worse what what do you assess and, and what are you looking for when you do an assessment what you're looking for is behaviors that indicate that this um, whether it's the current situation or whether it's the future situation um, if it's going to get worse or if it could lead to potential lethality. And so there has been a lot of research done that has shown, you know, they looked at cases where, you know, 500 victims were killed. And yeah. they've talked with, you know, their um, best friends and their relatives, looked at their criminal justice interventions that had happened, talked with their health care providers, and tried to figure out what kinds of behaviors were going on um, in these situations where the victims were actually killed. And then they found that there were themes and came up with risk factors that say, if these, you know, if a certain number of these things are going on in the relationship, you know, there's a good chance that this could potentially turn lethal or, or extremely injurious. And... Would you like to know some of those? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, can you share some of those with us? Sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be just reading from the Danger Assessment by Jackie Campbell. And okay. uh, this is the one that I said, you know, victims can look at themselves and, yes. you know, kind of figure out where they're at. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first one has to do with, is the physical violence increasing in severity or frequency over the past year. So um, that kind of answers your question about what's currently happening or what is going to happen is, you know, is it getting worse? The second is, does he own a gun? Uh, About 75% of domestic violence homicides are committed with a firearm. And in states that have passed firearm registration and background checks on all firearms, the number of domestic violence victims that are killed with firearms has decreased. That's actually a fact. Oh, wow. Um, another, well, and I think right. when, when there are arrests made, I'm in Washington State, and I think that when there are arrests made, uh, there is a search or, uh, you know, at least an inquiry into weapons that the perpetrator or the accused perpetrator might have. Um, right. I don't know about other states. Well, I think in most states, and uh, I just did a project where we interviewed uh, police departments in 24 different jurisdictions, um, and in most cases, you know, emergency communications or 911 is asking um, at the time that there's a call that comes into the 911 center um, if there are guns present or if there um, are, uh, the perpetrator has access to guns. 
Now, what they can do about that varies widely depending upon each state and their um, uh, the jurisdiction that's available to them in terms of um, seizing guns or finding information about whether or not guns are registered or whether or not the people that are there actually um, should be able to have a gun. Uh, so, yeah. you know, that varies widely across the states. Another okay. risk factor is have you left during mm. the past year? So you've been there together. And that ups the risk. You, that ups the risk a lot. Right. Yeah. Um, every time you try to leave, if you have a partner who's potentially dangerous, right, um, every time you try to leave is like um, being noncompliant, right? It's a slap in the face that says, you can't control me, I'm going to get away. And so yes. if you have someone, you know, whose goal is to kind of maintain dominance in the relationship, um, whenever you try to get away, they're going to up the ante in terms of what kind of strategies they're going to use to try to make the person stay in the relationship. Another one is um, uh, 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 being unemployed. And hmm. I'm not sure why well, that is. unemployed? Um, the, well, the is that the perpetrator being unemployed? Yep, the perpetrator. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, basically, some have said that just increases the access to the victim. You know, if you have a person who's not working, right, they're yeah. home. And, okay. you know, they also sometimes, you know, that can lead to depression and it can exacerbate alcohol use. I mean, there's a lot of um, co-occurring conditions that can happen um, along mm -hmm. with unemployment. Has he ever used a weapon against you or threatened you with a weapon? So it doesn't even have to have been... You know, um, you know, pulling a gun out, just saying, you know, I, I can shoot you with my gun. You know, I can cut your head off. I mean, various kinds of lethal sure. threats like that. Has he threatened yeah. to kill you or the children? Has he been, has he avoided being arrested for domestic violence? And uh, about, well, depending on where you live, um. Being gone on arrival, meaning that, let's say you call the police and the perpetrator leaves before the police get there. Now, wow. in, some jurisdictions, in some jurisdictions, they have a very active, proactive response to trying to find perpetrators who are gone on arrival. Um, in other jurisdictions, the practice is to tell the victim, well, if you want something to happen here, you're going to have to come down and talk to... Um, the county attorney or the district attorney, you know, and take out a warrant or get them to press charges, depending upon, you know, uh, what their response is, which once again is acting the asking the victim to take responsibility for having the criminal justice system do their job. Yes. Uh, so uh, uh, being arrested. Uh, and can, then, can we uh, compare that to, um, say, I go to the, uh, I call the police that my house has been burglarized. Right. The police come out, and even though the burglar isn't there, they still do an investigation, right? They still, right. the the process uh, goes on. So I'm having a hard time understanding why, um, if the victim is gone, they don't go out and start looking for him. Well, I, I don't, I, some, some places do. I don't want to, you know, put a okay. blanket out here and say it's bad. Okay. There are All right. quite a few communities who are doing a really good job. But then okay. there are other places where... Um, it's on you if you're the victim. You're going to have to go to the magistrate or you're going to have to go to the district attorney, you know, and you're going to have to get a warrant because we didn't see that it happen and we don't have a perpetrator here. So that's one and response. And then it basically becomes he said, she said. Yeah, and that's a bad response, okay? Um, okay. And so those are communities that need to look at, you know, finding some other, kind, some other way, some better strategy to um, locate, perpetrators are gone on arrival and to hold them accountable. Okay. Um, right. do, you have a, do you have a stepchild that is not his? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, now, this is that, up, that, that ups the risk. Ups yes, it does. So in other words, if you, you have a child that's not his, that ups the risk. That ups the risk. Okay. Now, we have to take this in context, right? Now, if that's uh -huh. the only thing going on in your relationship, you know, and you have, you have children and your partner is the stepfather to these children, that does not mean you're at risk of being killed, okay? We're talking okay. about within the context of ongoing domestic violence. 
Okay. You know, yeah. We're not talking about one mm-hmm. thing here. Um, yeah. Have Has he ever forced you to have sex when you didn't want to do so? Forced and coerced sex is a high risk factor. Um, a lot of victims do not want to talk about this. Many of them don't talk to the police. They'll talk about the fact that he has, you know, hit them or threatened them or pulled a gun on them, but not that he has been forcing them to have sex on a regular basis or coercing them into sexual acts that they don't want to do. So uh, this is a risk factor that a lot of people don't um, talk about. And even when they go to domestic violence programs to get assistance, a lot of times advocates don't ask them about this. Um, it's a hard thing, that, you know, to, for people to talk about, but it is a very high risk factor. And if it's happening, it indicates that this is a higher risk situation. Okay. Has he ever tried? Right. To, has, he, has he ever tried to strangle you? Strangulation occurs in so many assaults. Um, usually, the victim will say, "He choked me." Um, um, anything that impedes your ability to breathe whether that's, you know, holding their hands around your neck for, you know, three seconds, putting a pillow over your face, putting a plastic bag over your head. I mean, all of these sound pretty severe, but um, it's just amazing to me when we do analysis of police reports from different communities, how often we find allegations of choking. Um, Often it's, you know, as high as 50% of the cases involves some allegation of choking, down to maybe 25%. But it's a very common um, type of assault that's practiced um, in domestic violence situations. And so that's a very serious risk factor. Um, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know, people will choke you and then say, I was just kidding even. I mean, but... um, (laughs) So um, when you have a friend Uh that tells you... yeah. When you have a friend, you know, and or a relative or someone who says, you know, he choked me, then you really have to take this seriously, and hopefully she will understand that this is a serious risk factor as well. Another is, does he use illegal drugs? And we're talking uppers, amphetamines, meth, speed, angel dust, cocaine, crack, street drugs, or mixtures. Um, yeah. Well, that makes sense to me that that would be that that would up the risk factor, um, right? Because even if they're you know I mean it ups risk factors for just about everything, doesn't it? I mean car right. accidents and so right. why wouldn't it you know be a a, a pretty severe or pretty intense risk factor for um, safety? Um, right. Yeah. It, oh. it it seems logical. Is he an alcoholic or problem drinker? And the key here is. What is the effect of using alcohol on on their behavior, right? I mean, you can have alcoholics who don't get violent when they drink. And so the key is when they drink, what happens, right? Um, When they have a six-pack, do you think, oh, gee, I better get out of the house for the night? Um, If this is not an issue, then just because the person is an alcoholic does not mean that they're going to try to kill you. What this means is that in the context of someone who's trying to control you and their behavior gets more violent when they drink, then it is a risk factor. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. Do they control control most of your daily activities? For instance, um, tell you who you can be friends with, when you can see your family, how much money you can use, when you can take the car, um, et cetera. And then there's a kind of a sub-question under that saying, yes, he tries to do that, but I don't let him, okay? Now, this also okay. uh, becomes a risk factor because you're not being compliant, which is interesting yeah. to me. Because mm-hmm. um, the person is trying to control you, saying, no, I don't know. He tries, but I don't let him, right? And so that's yeah. something to look at, you know, is that if you're not being compliant with someone who's trying to maintain dominance, that does up the risk. Should you start being compliant? I don't think so. But, you know, it's just something to consider that, you know, it is a risk factor. Yeah. Is he, violent, yeah. is he, is he violently and or constantly jealous of you? For instance, saying things like, if I can't have you, no one can. Um, you better be here when you say you're going to be here. 
um, those kinds of threats about being obsessive and jealous or thinking that you're having an affair, you're going to meet the boyfriends or, um, and, you know, it, things like that whenever you leave the house or you want to go to school or go to work or do something like that. Um, another high risk factor is have you ever been beaten by him while you were pregnant? Ooh. The fact that there's a pregnancy involved is a higher risk. It is. Well, uh, yes, it is. But only in the context, yeah. once again, of trying to assess how dangerous is this domestic violence. And, in okay. fact, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but it was a study from the CDC, and it came out last year, and I probably won't get the stat right because I don't have it in front of me, but it was one of the leading risk factors for death in pregnancy was domestic violence. Oh, wow. It was a oh, huge wow. number. I mean, I've been doing this work for over 30 years, and even uh-huh. I was shocked about how much of a factor domestic homicide played in pregnancy. It was a huge, a huge number. Yeah. I'm going to say 25%. It could have been higher than that. It could have been less, but it was a for me, it was even a surprise. I, um, I, it's a surprise to me, too. I never thought of it, you know, as yeah. a, a, a risk, you know, for pregnant women. But apparently that, you know, I mean, you always think of the, you know, all the medical things that could go wrong with a pregnancy as the risk. Um, exactly. <laughs> that kind of takes it to a whole new level. Um, exactly. I mean, I wow, know it was... I wonder why we don't hear... I wonder why we don't hear more about that. I mean, um, why isn't... I? I I can't understand why people aren't shouting that one from the rooftops. Um, well, I, I, totally, I agree with you. Uh, but, you know, there have uh, been, there's been a lot of efforts recently, I would say in the last 15 years, in the healthcare field, you know, to try to really um, open up questioning or a conversation with victims um, about potential domestic violence when they show up at the hospital or when they show up for their OB appointments. So I think the healthcare field has realized this link. Um, it may just be something that's not out there to the general public. Ah, good. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. So are those the major risk factors that you assess? No, we have some more. To... Okay. We have some more. Do you want to hear Keep the more? Okay. Has he yeah. ever threatened yeah. or tried to commit suicide? Oh, really? Okay. Right. And so this basically says, um, if they've tried to commit suicide, I don't feel I have much to live for. I don't feel I have much to lose. And Um, I'm sure every day or, you know, somebody hears about a domestic violence um, situation where one person killed the other person and then killed themselves. Or killed killed, killed the victim, killed the children, and then killed themselves. It's very common. Mm -hmm. So, you know, oh, if you yeah, have an abuser who's... about it daily. Yeah. yeah. And so I, if you have... I was... Uh, not too long ago, I ran across the term familicide. And yes. I went, gosh, did we even have that term 15 years ago? Familicide, you know, for well, the murder of the entire family. Right. We probably didn't have that term, but we've had plenty of it going on. Yeah. We just didn't yeah. identify it like that. Um, has he ever threatened to harm your children. Mm-hmm. And then we have, do you believe he is capable of killing you or the children? Wow. Now, that must be a really hard question to answer for women. Because, I mean, their whole, their whole existence depends on them trying to manage um, their, their threat level. Does that, does that make right. sense? Right. Um, so to come right out and admit, yeah, yeah, I think he could. Um, you're mm-hmm. really putting your 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 sense of what's going on on a different level. I think. Well, and I think you know when you look at the stories of um, victims who have been killed, and you have family members who come forward and say, "She always told me that, you know, if anything happened to her, it would be John who did it." Right. Yes. And so yeah. there are there are a lot of victims who do already feel in danger and that much danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and this yeah. is the most important piece. If you ask a woman, do you think he might kill you or the children, and she says yes, you need to believe her, take her seriously, 
and try to help her figure out what are the obstacles for her to be safe and do something about it. Yeah, um, oh, absolutely. And, right. And so you can see that we have quite a few factors here. So, you know, if you're, you know, looking at a friend um, or a relative, you know, in a home where you think the violence is getting worse, you know, there's guns in the house, um, there's been threats to kill, she's called the police on him a couple times, but he's never got arrested, um, you know, she's currently pregnant. She's, I mean, you know, you look at these and all of a sudden, for me who's been doing this for a long time, it gave me a, a kind of a better um, analysis around level of threat. I mean, I knew these things were bad, and when you listen to women talk about what they're going through in their homes, you know, you get this, uh, what, what I used to think was an intuitive feeling that this was a very dangerous situation. And now I know yes. it's not intuitive. It's based on experience. It's based on research. It's based on facts. Um, of course, you, you don't have to have all of these things, you know, to end yes. up as a victim. But if these things are present, uh, this certainly is time to look at, you know, what are some resources, what are some options, what does this person need in order to be safe? And it, uh, it you know, the seems first to me like can't be real. It's not the first yeah. option. It seems to me that what we're doing with these kinds of risk assessments are the same things we do when we go to the doctor and he says, well, you're 50 pounds overweight and you have a family history of heart attacks and blah, 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 and so you better lose weight because you're at high risk for a heart attack. Exactly. Um, yeah, so what we're saying is, you know, not just one factor here, not just one factor, um, but several factors together really makes the risk a lot higher. Now, going back to our original, um, or my original concern anyway, um, who's using these assessments? Uh, who uses them? And, um, you know, I mean, is it advocates who use them, or are they used in courts? Okay, this particular assessment that I just talked about, um, mm -hmm. with this kind of combination of questions, is meant to be used in a kind of a confidential conversation um, between a social worker, an advocate, a healthcare worker, and a victim of domestic violence. There are other risk assessment models that have been developed. For instance, um, there's the Maryland Lethality Assessment Project, which is a um, model where you have police asking a modified list of questions. Uh, based on the ones I just talked about. Every time they go to the scene of a domestic, they ask these risk assessment questions. And if a person scores, I think it's a five or something like that, what they do is from the scene of the domestic, they call the domestic violence program. And they ask the victim, I'm really concerned for you. Would you be willing to talk with Sandy? She's an advocate at Home Free. And uh, usually the victims will say, okay. I mean, it's just a phone call, right? They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to leave their home, et cetera. And what they have found in various communities across the country that have implemented this lethality assessment, or it's called the LAP protocol, uh, for people who have implemented this in their community, the number of victims who are connected with an advocate who later go in for additional services ranges anywhere from 40 to 70 percent, depending on the community. Wow. So hooking, hooking the victims up with advocates is just about the best step a community can take because you're going to reach so many victims who otherwise would not even know that there are services available. They wouldn't have any idea what an advocate can or cannot do, what kind of options are there for them in a community. So it has been highly successful. It's also well, I been also one of them. think that something working with an advocate also uh, helps a person realize she's not alone. That actually this happens to other people, and you know, because uh, in a domestic violence situation, 
I would imagine most women feel like this is something they can't share with everybody, that, that maybe they're just alone in this whole thing and maybe it's their fault. And, you know, I don't imagine that it's easy to talk about this with other people, but if you find an advocate who's familiar with this, who can talk with you about this, you realize you're not alone. Well, being a victim is embarrassing. I mean, nobody yep. wants to be a victim. No. You know, I know I, it would be hard for me to be a victim or to admit that yes. I was a victim, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> yes. So when you talk with an advocate who says, you know, this is not your fault, you're not alone, this happens to one in three women, I mean, it's it's really kind of amazing how some of that shame melts away. And then, you know, the other issue of nobody can help me, which is what um, many batterers tell victims, you know, is nobody's going to yeah. believe you. Nobody can help you. You know, yeah. you just better realize that I'm in charge here. And so when you start talking yeah. with an advocate, you realize, hey, there are people who believe me. There are people who aren't going to try to make me do things I don't want to do. And uh, there is also great research available that shows that women who work with an advocate have better outcomes than women who don't. Now, I mean, that's perfect, right? That's all you need to know is that you you can work with an advocate. It's going to be on your terms. They can't force you to do anything. All they can do is tell you, this is what's available in your community. These are your options, right? This is how we can help you. If you want to go to court, you can. If you want to get an order for protection, you can. We'll help you. Um, If you need to find new safe housing, we'll help you with that. Um, If you need counseling for you and your children, we'll try to help you find that. Um, All of the different kinds of options that a victim may need in order to say, I have enough resources now to try to determine that I might be able to get out of this situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, And that sounds like a, uh, you know, I mean, that's probably why that statistic, that so many more are successful um, when they have an advocate behind them. Um, it, it just uh, makes sense to me that that's the case. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In uh, dealing with uh, perpetrators, when you first talked about risk assessment, my assumption mm-hmm. was is that um, somehow or other this could be used as a sentencing tool for a perpetrator. Um, well, it a sounds sentence. like we... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, there are some places... For instance, um, in Minneapolis, uh, probation is using risk assessments that are specifically determined to look at um, the perpetrator and what risk they pose to the victim by looking at their past criminal records, whether they've had, um, whether or not they've been on probation, whether they've had an order for protection. Um, are they currently using any kind of drugs? Have they been violent in other kinds of situations? And then they take that information and they present that as recommendations court in terms of um, what kind of court-ordered conditions uh, should be uh, given along with a sentence. <coughs> so that has been helpful. There are lots of communities who are using um, some sort of risk assessment, not enough. Um, but it has been helpful in saying, this guy is really dangerous. We need to put them in an intensive supervision program. Maybe we need to use uh, GPS monitoring on them. Uh, We have to increase our surveillance and monitoring, have them come in every week, have them do UAs. Um, It becomes a more individually tailored way. Oh, I'm sorry. What is a UA? A urine analysis. A urine analysis. Okay. To determine whether or not they've been drinking or using drugs. Okay. Good. Right. Um, yeah, so that's an ideal situation. I imagine there are lots of courts that, that you know, don't participate in that kind, that level of, of um, investigation before they sentence or find someone guilty of abuse or uh, domestic violence. But that sounds like a really ideal way to pursue it. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of areas, we're not so ideal, are we? <laughs> but, well, um, you, know, that's, I, you know, I guess that's the point is that it hasn't been the role of the criminal justice system to account for safety. It has been their mm-hmm. job to try to hold the offender accountable, right? 
And part of that accountability is safety, but it hasn't really been their role. And so I'm not going to bash the criminal justice system. I'm going to say we're asking the criminal justice system intervention, right, to take on an additional task, which Mm -hmm. is trying to determine how dangerous is the situation and what kind of new strategies can we put in place to uh, surveil and contain the offender. And that's a new job. So on the positive side, there are communities who are trying to figure out what's kind of the new best thing we can do here once we determine that we have a really potentially dangerous abuser. I mean, when you talk with police officers and probation officers and prosecutors, they know sometimes, you know, it's like, God, this guy looks really, really dangerous. What can we do? And so there are communities who are trying to figure out how to use this assessing for risk and danger, starting at the 911 call and then using this information, collecting more information so that they can get a good picture about what are we really looking at in this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then using that both to assist the victim and to assist the court system, I think, would, again, be an ideal situation. And I hope that that's happening a lot um, out there. I know uh, right now there's um, Department of Justice um, has put out a call for um, stories or anecdotes about uh, family courts. Uh, and uh, the DOJ is looking at family courts and saying, you know, where where have we, you know, where have we gone wrong on these issues? And uh, then hopefully in the future saying, you know, okay, now what can we do about this? And it seems to me, or at least I hope, that that uh, research is a definite, and that study is definitely represented with risk uh, people who are familiar with the risk assessment. Right. Um, right. That just makes sense. Are, are you aware of that? Is there, are you aware of any? Um, particip- I know it's a relatively new thing, but as a person who works with risk assessment, are you aware of any efforts um, on those professionals to participate in the DOJ st- uh, study? Well, you've talked to the right person. The Battered Women's Justice Project um, has actually been funded by the Department of Justice to work on the custody project. And so we are the technical assistance provider that has been looking at this very issue of how can we insert um, a lens of analyzing domestic violence and risk into family court processes. And actually, um, this is our second round of funding where we're going to be working with four communities who the family courts, have uh, they want to look at things in a new way. And so we have developed some tools, some domestic violence screening processes. Um, there are so many players in the family court that uh, trying to get them all on the same page is a challenge. There's many more players in family court than there are in the criminal justice intervention in just that one court. And you've got the judges, you've got mediators, you've got um, guardian ad litem. Guardian ad litem. Parenting, yeah, yeah. Parent, parenting coordinators, um, depending on your community. And so uh, you have to get everybody to the point where they say, okay, let's try to figure out what kind of domestic violence is going on, if there is any. Uh, because a lot of times just being in a divorce or custody, you know, can be very contentious and you may have um, things going on that are not domestic violence, but they're just a result of the high, the high um, conflict that goes on in divorce. But there is a lot of domestic violence that has to be identified. And then you have to yeah. determine what is the impact that this domestic violence is having on the children and also on the non-abusive parent, and how are you going to work this into your uh, custodying and parenting and visitation recommendations. So it's extremely complicated, but we're working on it. And, yeah. uh, you know, well, is, and the whole uh, issue, I think, of risk assessment, uh, when you talk about child custody uh, and child visitation, I'm not sure in the past that, that uh, risk has been a huge consideration for child custody, and so it's kind of heartening to know that... Or none. Um, it, hasn't know, we, been a, it hasn't been a consideration. No. Hardly. And so, I know we had a case, 
yeah, we've we've had a case here in uh, uh, Washington. It's been several years now, and I've never been able to find. They must have settled out of court because I've never been able to find the uh, disposition of that case. Um, but uh, dispensation of that case, I guess, is the right word. Um, but a young woman was placed with an abusive um, grandfather for custody, and the abusive grandfather abused her just like they said that he would in court, you know, in the custody issues. And Um, when she turned 18, she sued the guardian ad litem, she sued the court, she sued everybody. Um, At least she filed suit. And again, I I haven't been able to figure out exactly what happened or to find out what exactly happened. But when I read that story, I thought, good, you know, that's good. Let's have some accountability in these decisions. Um, Because the safety of the child doesn't seem to be a huge consideration uh, of family court. It, it has more to do with the rights of the individual who's who's there uh, in front of them, I think. Um, well, that's a, hard, have a right? that's a hard balance for courts, I think, that they haven't, they haven't really been able to figure out in terms of, um, you know, which comes first, which has the most priority, you know, the rights yeah. of the parent or the safety of the child and how are those two related. And what happens when there's a lot of domestic violence going on? Uh, sometimes the courts think, oh, domestic violence, divorce. Once they get divorced, there won't be any domestic violence. And so we'll just <laughs> give both parents equal access to the children. Yeah, which is exactly how somebody who's never um, been in a domestic violence situation would probably think. Um, they They tend to think that, Normal is normal for everybody. You know, their normal is normal for everybody. And uh, anyone who's been in an abusive situation will tell you, no, that's not the way it is. I've had people say, well, my wife and I had a very contentious divorce, but uh, that's been two years and now we're the best of friends. That's never going to happen in a domestic violence situation. Never. Um, So, you know, a lot of people base, use their own, well, I guess we all do. We all use our own experiences to base our opinions and thoughts and all of that kind of stuff. So it seems logical that somebody who really doesn't know a whole lot about domestic violence would, would say, yeah, you know, they, they should be going back to normal here after, you know, the ink is dry. But that's exactly. not the case. Yeah. Right, and if they so, don't go back to normal, then, you know, let's say that you have a victim who's saying, hey, this is not working, I'm still afraid, my kids are still afraid, et cetera, then more often than not the family court response has been is that this victim is trying to alienate the children. Yeah, yes. Instead of, you know, saying maybe her fears are real. Um, Well, I've also heard We're working on it, though. Yeah, well, I'm, and I'm so happy that you are. I really am, because this is an area that definitely needs work. And, of course, the, the, the organization that you work for is just outstanding. You know, usually in our uh, conversation here, I will give out the hotline for domestic violence, if you, the national hotline. If you are experiencing domestic violence or if you think you are, uh, call the domestic violence hotline, 1-800-799. 7233. And they will hook you up with local organizations that can help you. And uh, also what I like to tell people who are thinking that they might be experiencing domestic violence but they're not sure uh, or they're not sure what to do or they're not ready to leave their abuser for various reasons, that doesn't matter. You can still seek the support of uh, domestic violence organizations even if you're not ready to leave just now. And as a matter of fact, it might be a good idea to do so because it will help you do your planning uh, if you later down the road you do want to leave. Um, would you agree with that, Connie? Definitely. It can't hurt. It can only help. And, you know, they will give you a referral to the program that's closest to you, uh, geographically mm-hmm. closest to you in terms of an advocate if you want to talk to an advocate that lives in your jurisdiction. And if you don't have a good experience... I just want to say this. If you don't have a good experience talking to an advocate in a program, call the hotline back, let them know you didn't have a good experience, and ask for another referral. Because sometimes that happens. We've all gone into places where it's like, that person didn't understand me or didn't give me what I needed. Don't stop. Keep trying to find someone to listen to you. Yeah. And that support, uh, that behind you can make a world of difference. 
Well, Connie, I usually end our shows with a quote, and um, the, this quote uh, from Piper Alpha, uh, Sir. Oh, I'm sorry, from Sir Brian Appleton, after Piper Alpha, whatever that means. Safety is not an intellectual exercise to keep us in work. It is a matter of life and death. It is the sum of our contributions to safety management that determines whether the people we work with will live or die. And I think that's exactly what we've been saying here this morning. Thank you so much, Connie, for being with us. I've, had a, I've learned a lot. And I uh, hope you join us next week for more on Three Women, Three Ways. Thank you.